Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Amy Sherman Palladino is the mastermind behind the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She created the Gilmore Girls. She was a writer on Roseanne. Those three are some of the most unique shows to have ever graced our airwives. They all follow families that were a little bit bonkers, dealing with the ups and downs that life throws us all, finding happiness, rebuilding after loss, what love really means. They're also all about women, but maybe not the kind of women that you expect to see on TV. And the idea of taking a woman who was not a 1950s housewife who was dissatisfied with her life or staring out a window thinking there's something better out there, but a woman who really loved her life, who really thought, I've scored, this is great, um, having that ripped out from under her and then discovering this whole other way to live, that was a journey that I thought was worth taking. It's Bullseye. My guest is the wonderful Amy Sherman Palladino. She's the creator of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The show circles around Midge Maisel and her dysfunctional family. She starts the show as a housewife in 1950s New York. She finds out her husband is having an affair, and she decides to channel her pain into a blossoming stand-up career. The show has been nominated for a ton of Emmys this year. Amy took home a few last year, too. She was the first woman to win an Emmy for Best Comedy Writing and Directing. There are plenty of things that Amy is great at, but her superpower maybe is writing scenes with quick, punchy dialogue. Let's hear a little bit of it. In this clip from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Midge and her manager Susie are at a TV studio. Susie has gotten Midge her very first television appearance, and it is every comic's dream breakthrough booking, a telethon. So this is really happening. This is really happening. Helen? You bet. You bring your sheet music? She's not a singer. I'm a comedian. Mrs. Maisel? You're down for five minutes at 2150. What? We do military time. 2150 is 9.50 at night. If you get confused, just add the number 12 to whatever time it is. And what's a what? Next. Follow me? Sure. I'm Sal. Nice to meet you. This is Mrs. Maisel, comedian. She does five minutes at 2150. Solo act. Any props? Nope. Stand on the X. Okay. Mic check. One, two. Next. Thank you. Oh, uh, okay. Wait, we dragged ourselves down here at 8 o'clock in the morning and that's it? Record. I showered. Thank you for showering. We'll see you tomorrow. 1,600 hours. When's that? Wait, Sal. Things move fast in the television business. <laughs> Amy Sherman Palladino, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that. Uh, uh-huh. I'm not 100% sure if it was sincere, but it's... It was It's as sincere as I can muster on the night before a table read. That's what you get. And now we're talking. What's the, <laughs> what's the table read tomorrow? Tomorrow we read the last episode of season three. Are you nervous about it because uh, things have gone poorly or is simply because uh, what you have written is now going to come alive and you could potentially be embarrassed? I don't know that nervous is the uh, exact word. It's a very big show. Our last two shows this season are very big. So it's just a little it's a little daunting. There'll be a lot of uh, Valium involved, but I think it's all <laughs> going to be fine. Well, I I am uh, optimistic about it on your behalf. Um, oh, good. And I am glad to have you on the show. Hmm. Uh, you grew up in uh, show business in a very interesting way. Your your father was a comic and your mother a dancer. Yes. And you kind of grew up to be a 
comedy dancer. Yes, <laughs> like, I was just a hilarious ballerina. It was just <laughs> nothing but comedy every time I put toe shoes on. But I mean, it truly is like you really split the difference. By the time you were done with high school, you were auditioning for dance parts and writing comedy scripts. So was that always what your expectation of what your life would be? No, I was I was supposed to be a dancer and and my mother is still waiting for a a return on her investment of all those toe shoes which she she hasn't seen yet. But um I was not going to be a writer. I had no intention of being a writer. And then uh and then I got uh, in an improv group, school class something and I met a girl and we were bored and out of work and sat around eating ding-dongs and drinking tea and we wrote a couple of spec scripts just basically for the hell of it, and uh, and that got us on Roseanne. And when I got Roseanne, I was not sure I wanted to do it because I was a dancer. I didn't go to an office and nine to five. What what is that craziness? That's mental, you know. People. It was a room full of men in jeans and very pristine white sneakers and button up shirts, and I'm like, this is not. This is completely not my my world. Uh, and yet it was apparently very uh, fortunate that I made that turn because I, I get to eat now, which I didn't get to do when I was uh, young and danced. So did you have what it took to be a dancer, especially a ballet dancer? Like one of the weird things about being a ballet dancer is you can have all of the uh, commitment in the world and you can even have all the skill in the world and still be wrong for it because you're like calf is the wrong shape or something i'm not an expert well uh, you, no you sound you apparently you're an expert on caps which is all you really need to be <laughs> um you know when i was in ballet i was always i always felt like my body was not the correct ballet body i was a short waist i was a jumper and a turner but I didn't have like the that elegant like bourrees drew me crazy because like anything that was like fluttery and light, I wanted to kill myself. I liked the, I liked what the guys did. I liked like the strong stuff. And I went to school in you know my school in L.A. was a, a school that like Heather Watts, who was a prima ballerina in a, a New York City ballet, like she came out of that school. Like it was a very serious ballet school. And every year, Joffrey would come down and they would hold auditions for. Uh, their summer program and like two or three years in a row they'd be like you know what next year next year and like by the third time I heard next year I'm like you know what <laughs> I'm gonna add some tap and some jazz to this and I'm gonna find it because it was it was clear to me that ballet while I loved it and I loved being on point which is insane because you know it's it's just horrible for your feet and completely unnatural but it's it's just a very fun it's fun it's just fun it's it's otherworldly it's a weird superpower when you can get up on your toe and turn it's and balance and hold it's it's um it's it's a really freeing sort of interesting way to sort of grow up and i i now like i i proselytize to all of my friends who have children because i really believe every kid should go to ballet class for until they're 10 and then if they want to quit let them quit but it gives you such an amazing sense of your body and like who you are, especially girls, because your body gets so weird and everything changes and it's strange. But like just to have sort of like a balanced sense of yourself and that sort of strength and, you know, ballet dancers are a little less like 
embarrassed about their their bodies because, you know, they smell bad all the time and you're always like hanging out with like sweat all over you and you're just like with each other. Like, you know, when you're doing partnering, some guy's got his hand up your crotch, just what it is, because that's how you're balancing. It's just a weird, it's like you sort of lose a little bit of that prudishness about, oh, my body, you know, I'm so this and look at that. It's like, it's sort of, sort of, it's sort of like a, it's, it's a creature. It's like this other creature. And I think that dance to me, I love working with dancers more than anything in the world. We use dancers a lot uh, on our shows because they, they're disciplined, they're focused. They, 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 you know, they get paid nothing. If you give them a sandwich, they're happy. So they're like, they get paid absolutely nothing. And the fact that, that, uh, it's it's an art form just purely for the enjoyment of the art form as opposed to any sort of like, I'm going to be this famous ballerina and make a billion dollars. Like, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, one one in a million people, there's one Baryshnikov. That's it. You know, it's like, it's like, it's it's not, it's not one of those art forms that you're, you're, you go into for the, the commerce of it or the I'm going to be world famous. You really go into it for the love and the art of it. And there's something really great about that. And I, I look back on those days quite, quite fondly, especially when I look in a mirror now and I see what I look like. I just didn't appreciate it. What kind of comic was your dad? You grew up in the Los Angeles area. Was he working the road or was he writing or what? Well, my dad... Um, when I was young, was he? You know, he started in the Catskills, as every every Jew has to, and he was very much in that sort of that Shucky Green, um, Jackie Mason um, sort of group of comics, and he toured a lot. He toured with Dinah Washington. He toured with um, Johnny Mathis and Jose Feliciano. And then when we moved out to uh, L.A., or they moved out to L.A., and then they had me there, which I've never, ever forgiven them for, because, like, at least get it on the birth certificate that I was East Coast. I was very—it's a, it's a thing. Um, They—he was—he did a lot of work for, like, Bob, the Bobby Darren show, or the Joey Bishop show, anything with, like, a name in a show. He was sort of a variety writer for a long time, anything that had to do with jokes and comedy. And, and then he—the last, I don't know, 40 years of his life, he did— uh, uh, cruises. He did was comedy cruises. He was he was Mr. Saturday Night, and he would go on these cruises, and he was like Bono halfway through because everyone was like two hundred years old, and they loved him. And he would go on the cruises, and he would talk about. He, my dad was a riffer. He was a very stream of conscious kind of guy. You know, he would he he didn't work blue, which is why they loved him. But he could just get on a boat and talk about what was ridiculous on the boat and the people that they met and the, and and because of that, everybody sort of felt like the show was sort of special to them. And he was just really successful at that till till basically till he was too old to, uh, you know, do it anymore. And it was great because my mom went with him and they toured all over the world and. You know, it was he. My father never ever held a day job. He worked his entire life. He bought a house. He put me through uh, all of my ridiculous ballet school, which is you know, ballet is also not a cheap art form. It's it takes a lot of money because you you know you go through a pair of toe shoes you know in a in a a month or a couple of weeks. Sometimes it's a lot of cash flow to keep it going. Um, I you know, while he never became like a household name, he never ever did anything but comedy, and that's how he supported us and. That's that's very uh, uh, admirable and, and unusual, you know. My parents looked at it differently. They were they were pissed, but I thought that's a great thing. If you never held a day job, then you made your money the way you were supposed to make your money. We have a clip of your dad doing stand up uh, in his capacity as the the king of the high seas. Oh Jesus! 
um, on a, this. Uh, this is a clip from a cruise to Mexico on the celebrity Mercury. Okay. But I wanted to see Mazatlan, so I go out in the terminal, all I see are buses, 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 buses. All those buses, and they have no place to go. Now I know why I can't get a bus in New York. They're all in Cabo San Lucas. I got on one of the buses, the man took me to the Golden Zone, he took me to the El Cid Hotel, he took me to a beautiful church that was packed with passengers all praying they'd never have to come back to Mazatlan again. <laughs> and then they brought us to Acapulco, which is Mazatlan spelled backwards. Acapulco, that's like a Kmart that's out of control. He's a funny good, dude. He's he's selling them too. There's there was uh, I I don't think that there was anybody in that audience who wasn't who wasn't bowled over. You know what I mean? Oh no, my dad was. I'm telling you because he would go on these cruises and it was a, the greatest gig in the world because he would do. They had these they build these beautiful theaters on these boats. They're like you know 1500 seat theaters. It's ridiculous and they they have two shows and he would go on and he would do basically one night he would do two shows and that was it. <laughs> that's how he made and the rest of the time he hung out on the cruises and it would always happen about midway through the cruise so the cruise would start and everyone's happy and feeling great and two days in the fathers especially start to realize they've been had and nothing is free like they thought it was and nothing's included like they thought it was and the kids are starting to get weird and hang out in like hallways at night and the <laughs> everyone's sort of squabbling and turning on each other and then my dad would come on halfway through the cruise and all he would do was that and talk about how ridiculous the cruises were and it was like it was like therapy so everybody was like yes someone understands us somebody feels our pain and like it would like literally alleviate the tension and I believe he saved marriages he saved people from throwing their children overboard I mean there was all sorts of things that that could have happened if the, if it continued down the road it was going it was it was a great great gig for him and he he was really great at it and he he was he loved doing it so you know there there you go I mean occasionally you know there's you get sick because everyone gets sick on those cruises because they're filthy but other than that it was a delightful experience how old were you when you and your writing partner got the job on Roseanne? I was 20, 23, 24. I was young. I was so young. And it was it was season three of Roseanne, right? Was your was your first year? My my first year was season three. I was there three, four, five, six. I uh, my Roseanne history is a little blurry at the edges, but that's kind of in. So is hers. So there yeah. But I'm bump. I'll be here all night. Uh, it's that's kind of in between the most intense madness of Roseanne, right? Like the first and second season was when all of the people who, you know, had been installed were getting uninstalled. Yes. And later on was when things maybe production wise got a, got a little batty. What was it like working on that show? Well, season three especially was great. Uh, the, my first year. And was it four, season three and four? Those are the two like really really great years. Bob Myers was running the show, and he was a great showrunner. Like he was an old school showrunner. You know, he came up like my two dads and like old school sitcom. And you know, we never we didn't have a table. We sat in his office on uh, couches, and we 
each held our own pad and wrote our own notes. Like a writer's assistant didn't sit in there and type incessantly. Like, you know, it, it was a completely, it was very, very old. It was very Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, um, uh, uh, Dick, sorry, Dick Van Dyke. You know, like where you just sort of like sat around and kind of riffed and and it wasn't as, it didn't have a corporate feeling at all. It really felt like what my vision of a writer's room still is. Um, and because she had gone through all the madness of, breaking up with her husband and she was together with Tom and they sort of fired everybody and they'd sort of taken over the show. It was it was those two years especially were very sort of like great oasises because she was happy and she was very focused on her relationship. And she had also banned the studio and the network from this the set. So my first experience in a show there were no studio and network notes. I didn't I didn't know they could give notes. I had literally no idea because it was just very much the writers and then the writers with Roseanne or the writers with the actors. It was the way, I, to me, it should be. You know, like we would come in, we'd break our stories, we'd write our scripts, we'd do our table reads, we'd go back, we'd talk about it, we'd do our fixes and the next day. And it wasn't until I got off of Roseanne and I was on another show, and I, I was there four years, so I, I left a, a supervising producer and I went on to another show and and I, I was like, who are all these people sitting around this table and why are we listening to them? Like someone had to say to me, this is, this is the network in the studio. And I'm like, so what? We have work to do. And like, we have to, like, we have to wait and get their notes. It was like a, a foreign concept to me that suddenly there was this layer between the writers and the actors. And and it was so basically, Roseanne prepared me completely for what I'm doing, and yet com- didn't prepare me at all for the actual business of 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 show because I didn't. I grew, you know, I sort of grew up. In a in a utopian writer's room, <laughs> it, was, it was it was Xanadu, um, and then seasons the the last two seasons that I was there, Bob left, and then the staff started to get ridiculously big, and she started to get more unhappy with Tom, and then things sort of shifted, and and I when I left, I, I was ready, I was ready to go. I want to play a scene from uh, one of my guest Amy Sherman Palladino's episodes of Roseanne back in the day. Um, so in this episode, Becky, who's one of uh, Roseanne's daughters, has run away from home and she's staying with Aunt Jackie mm-hmm. and Darlene comes in to check on her, her sister. What did mom do that was so horrible? Everything. She wouldn't let me see Mark. Well, you saw him anyway. Well, I had to lie about it. You didn't lie. I lied. I covered for you and I got grounded and you don't even care. I'm sorry, Darlene, all right? No, you're getting off way too easy, Becky. Go home, Darlene. Look, Jackie is putting up with you. Mom and Dad are impossible. Mom and Jackie are fighting. Everybody's yelling at everybody else, and nobody's saying what they should be saying. Becky, you're a selfish, inconsiderate, spoiled little brat. Yeah. Those kids were really good. (laughs) Yeah. I really, I really agree. She was really good. But Lisey was great, too. They were just great, though. Everyone, I mean, one of the things about Roseanne is... The cast was sensational. Every single person on the show is extraordinarily good. And, you know, like, you you start with one of the most specific and powerful comic voices of her generation. Uh, You know, one that was, like, that, like, needed, that was needed... Uh, and important, and then you just add exceptionally great actors who are also really funny. Like yeah. any any time 
you know, uh, you could be like, oh, yeah, and what, uh, number three on the call sheet is Lori Metcalf, you know? Yeah, I know, I know. And Lori was the kind of person, you know, what, what I learned also on Roseanne is that comedy wasn't all, was not about jokes. Um, and, and Roseanne didn't have a joke quota. You know, there was no mandate that we had to leave a scene on a joke. There was no mandate of how many jokes had to be on a page. It was all about people talking to each other. And Lori was somebody that you could give something to that the joke was not in the structure of the words, but you knew she how she was going to make it funny because she was just like that brilliant. And and that's that's another, you know, very strong lesson to learn that it's not always about it's not always about but um bump. It's about, you know, what are they saying to each other? What's the situation? And really knowing who your characters are and what their voices are and what point of view they're going to come at because that's where the comedy is going to come. And those two girls were just great because they knew how to just play it. They were just so real. They were such real teenagers. You know, they drove you crazy (laughs) the way that teenagers were supposed to drive you crazy. But they really just were – I think that those were the two best teenage characters on television – Almost comedy and drama ever are, are, were, were Lucy and Sarah. There's so much fear and anger in Roseanne that you don't find in a lot of family sitcoms. Um, and, you know, it typically gets resolved. I mean, that's what a sitcom is for. Um, but it and, and I mean, I guess it must just come from Roseanne's voice a, as a comic. But like there is real dark feelings in that show that were so uncommon on, you know, even like the, you know, Norman Lear sitcoms of the seventies, like there's so many people getting in real fights and people really being freaked out about circumstances in their life, you know, economic circumstances and, and elsewhere. Um, that you that you don't get in, a, you know, you weren't getting in other even good sitcoms of the time. Well, the best comedy is drama. That's and the best dramas are comedies. You know, Sopranos was one of the funniest shows on television. So I, I, I to me, like comedy and drama are simply one is less pages <laughs> than the the other because it because it it really is like great comedy you know, is going to be is going to be willing to go for those moments and go for the real moments. That's where you're going to get the real funny, but then you're going to really knock someone on the Like, to me, that's great comedy. And that's what great drama is, too. It's just, it's because it's about, again, the, the mantra on Roseanne was make the big small, make the small big. It was, that was the thing. It wasn't about, like, you know, a big situation. It was about the small thing that happens in life that throws people off kilter. And that's something that I have taken to heart for the rest of my uh, career because I think it's the most important thing. My interview with the great Amy Sherman Palladino continues after a quick break. Still to come, do you love the Gilmore Girls? She did not even mean to pitch the Gilmore Girls in the meeting where she sold the Gilmore Girls. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. 
Then ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com bullseye. Just a few years before starring in Book of Mormon, Andrew Rannells was way off Broadway doing, and I quote, It's Karate Kid, the musical. This is the punctuation. It's Karate, comma, Kid, colon, the musical. For legal purposes. The stories behind the celebrities. Every Tuesday on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager and I I was two butts, 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 butts. No. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Amy Sherman Palladino. She's the creator of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's been nominated for a boatload of Emmys, including Outstanding Comedy Series and Best Directing. I heard somewhere that when you sold uh, the Gilmore Girls. The Gilmore Girls was not the pitch that you had brought into the room intending to sell. Is that true? It wasn't even one of the first five pitches that I brought into the room. (laughs) It was literally the afterthought pitch because I had I had a whole other pitch. I had optioned an article and I worked on it and then what, I had like a couple what, of back. What was the article about? It was actually a really great article. It was a it was a it was about a girl who was um a Filipino girl. Her parents were very, very traditional, old country, and she was the first generation American kid born. And she was really smart and she started a zine and like her 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 was not a traditional beauty. She was just like a really interesting, smart girl. And like she was so admired at school. And like her boyfriend was the handsome, like captain of the football team. She was just a very interesting individual. And and she was but she had a big battle between the traditional role that her parents thought that she should be fulfilling as a girl in a Filipino family and a and a very American-born girl who wanted to be an American girl, and it was a great, it was a great, a great series. And they just uh, wanted to order lunch the whole time I was talking. So <laughs> apparently, I was the only one who thought it was great. And I mean, you were in there with the uh, that was like really working on and selling a really particular thing, yes. which was a relatively new phenomenon in television. Like, uh, you know, there had been, a, there was original programming on cable, but not that much of it. Mm-hmm. And network television programs were still by and large designed to appeal to everyone. And the idea that you were making, that this network was making programming, uh, for, you know, uh, Minded younger women significantly uh, was a big deal at the time. And it sounds like they just heard, oh, it's a mom and a daughter who are uh, friends as much as they are mom and daughter. And we're like, yeah, that's that's a thing that makes sense with our thing. Yeah, it, th- that was literally the pitch. It was just it's a mom and a daughter and they're just more best friends than mom and dad. Like, OK, go write that. <laughs> and I walked out 
And I turned to Gavin Polone, who was my manager at the time, and I said, I don't I don't know what that show is. Like it was a sentence. And he goes, well, go find out. <laughs> so like, it's like, well, now you got to go home and figure it out because we just sold it. So that's basically the way Gilmore was sold. But you know what? That's to be honest with you, that's the way Bunheads came about, and that's the way Maisel came about. Every time I've walked into a room with a really, like, plan, it's it's never been the same as I'm just in a room, shooting my mouth off as usual, talking a mile a minute, um, wearing a hat that makes everybody nervous, and then <laughs> something I say sparks somebody who's huddled in a corner and peeks their head out for five seconds from behind their hands and go, go right that. Now, maybe they just want to get me out of the room, but it's like literally every single time I've, I've on all three of those shows, it's kind of all happened the same way. Gilmore Girls, I think, also has, carries like a very specific kind of television fantasy in a very unusual way. Like there were whole, you know, uh, I don't know if this is still the watchword at USA, but for a long time, USA was supposed to be the Blue Skies Network, right? And it was like, where oh, were they? <laughs> yeah, and you know all the all the procedurals, including the really great one. You know, Mung is a great show. Yeah. Um, were all, you know, they had their they had their elements of conflict, but the the goal was to give you an escapist experience and. Gilmore Girls has some of those qualities, especially in its setting. You know what I mean? Like Stars Hollow, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's in a, it's in kind of a dream town, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, like both like a, the kind of town you would like to live in and the kind of town that kind of shares qualities with a dream. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of weird edges in there in a way that those kinds of shows don't typically have. You know, usually they have like one edge, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm I'm just, I don't know. I think it's cool that it was on TV for so long. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think it's amazing it was on TV for so long. Um, it was, you know, Gilmore was basically, it was based on a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It was the disillusion of a family. It was a a girl who rejected everything that her parents stood for. And even to the very end of Gilmore Girls, that was, rift was never healed. It, it was, it's what drove the narrative of Gilmore Girls was alienation and, and pain. You know, I mean, Emily only got a relationship with her granddaughter out, out of blackmail, you know, and, and, and only got her daughter back into her life via blackmail. It's it's that is the basis of Gilmore Girls. It's just that they happen to live in this very cute, quirky town that was fun. And and because the point of the whole thing was to me, like, if the family you have doesn't work out, go out and create a family that does. And that's what, you know, that's what Lorelai did. She found this place that she felt like family. And that's how her family and her mind would relate to each other because her family did not do that for her and and so I, th- I think that the rough edges just come from the fact that the that this whole thing is based on people that were very hurtful to each other on all sides yay <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. yeah i mean like i feel like the difference between the difference between gilmore being a sitcom and being a drama besides the number of pages i mean i'm sure that you could write a drama's worth of pages for a sitcom script um, being who you are, that being your superpower. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the big differences is like all sitcoms are based on a family uh, that is, you know, made unresolved and then resolves. Like there is something that uh, creates a, 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 a disjuncture in the family and then the narrative of the show and the relationships uh, come back together at the end. Like, you know, whether it's a literal family or whether it's, you know, the people who know your name at the bar, right? Right. And Gilmore Girls, what's special about it, I think, is that it has it, it has that kind of classic... Uh, sitcoms ersatz family right it's it's uh lauren graham's character and her daughter and her best friend and her friend down at the diner and uh depending on the season the uh, person she's having a romance with um but it's also (laughs) it's also the like one of the realities of that family is that her family is fundamentally broken (laughs) Completely broken. Yeah. And it, it, absolutely completely broken and, and doesn't understand each other at all. Yeah. <laughs> they literally, they, they they had seven years of talking to each other and they still didn't understand each other. Like they just did not, she did not understand her her mother and her mother just did not understand her daughter. And that, and then eventually like Rory was sort of stuck in the middle because she, she wanted to, you know, her mother was her best friend and she wanted a relationship with her grandmother. But it's like, how do you pick sides? It's, it's, it was a war. It was an emotional war. And the the interesting thing about Gilmore Girls, and I will say the one, I've always given them credit for this, the one really good note in my entire career that I've gotten was when I wrote the pilot initially, or when I pitched the pilot initially, I didn't pitch it, I pitched it up to the uh, first Friday night dinner. And and, and to me, episode one was that Friday night dinner. And... uh, Suzanne Daniels said to me, boy, I'd really like to see that Friday night dinner. And I'm like, all right. You know, I didn't know. I came from a half hour. I'm like, that's just more pages, right? Okay, I'll just, you know, and literally it was the Friday night dinner and the battleground and setting the battle lines in that house, that that was going to be the house where war took place, that I believe got it on the air and made the show. I think without that scene, it would have been lighter and fluffy and it would not have had the weight of, oh, these people are really going to do battle with each other. <laughs> There's going to be, there there will be blood. Um, and that was a great, it was a, it was a great note. And I will, I will, my hat's off to Suzanne for, for making me do it. Let's talk a little bit about Mrs. Maisel. I read somewhere, and this may or may not be true, that uh, you know, you obviously have collaborators in writing the show, including your husband, who has been a creative partner and business partner with you for quite a long time. But but I read that you personally 
wrote her stand-up. Is that actually true? Well, we write her stand-up. I mean, Dan and I, if it's Dan's script, he'll write it. If it's my script, I'll write it. But we always write her stand-up because her stand-up comes from story. That's how it was conceived because um, we had to decide what, you know, I had to decide what kind of comic she was going to be. And my father was a observation. I mean, you saw that he was a ranter. He was a, he was a stream of conscious kind of guy. You know, he, the guys, the people that I admire, the Mel Brooks, so that they, 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 they just blathered funny. <laughs> and that was the kind of comedy that I loved. And the kind of comedy that I thought if you, if you take an actress who wasn't a comic, you got to give her a way into the character that she's going to be able to understand because it's a whole different muscle being a stand-up comic. It's it's a it's a very different way of thinking and creating your your voice. And I needed to give an actress a, a way to get in there that she could understand. And I thought, will you give her make sure that every act she has is grounded in something that's happening in the episode? So she's basically staying on story. And because of that, it just it comes, it has to, because it comes from from the character, it comes from the story, that's something that we can do. You know, I, I don't write but bump jokes. Um, we've got some very, very good road comics who come in and help us, especially with, because we have so much comedy in it, we have so many stand-up routines. And they help punch up and, and, and things like that, you know, so they're they're involved in the whole process. I'm not trying to diminish their their accomplishments or, or because they're very important to me and if they leave me, I'll kill them. But... Um, <laughs> But the the crux of what her comedy has to be, it's it's intertwined with what we're writing anyhow. So I am not a singer. You would know that if I, well, sang. I am actually a comedian. I talk to people for a living. Not that I'm making a living. Really, this whole comedian thing was all just a ruse to get on this telethon today. Mason, I'll take that $78,000 now in small bills. Arthritis be damned. That's right. This is an extremely unlikely stick-up. The only witnesses being some drunk cameramen, three sailors on leave, and 14 people half asleep in front of their TV. She's good. She's a natural. She's all that. Were you worried that you would get it wrong somehow? I mean, like, I remember when Studio 60 was on TV, how mad every sketch and improv friend I had uh, was about the sketches on that show that they had decided to show. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, actually. We were very concerned because because the world is it's very specific. And, I, and it's a hard world to show people. When you're in a club, um, you think like, God, there's so many like weird people here and interesting relationships and it would be such a but the thing about comedy and comedy clubs is they're they're very sad places they're not they're not inherently funny places because most good comedy comes from pain and and unhappiness and a lot of comics are not um happy pappy campers off stage that's why they're funny on stage so there's a lot of like darkness to a comedy club that i think when people think oh you do something in a comic club, it's just going to be so funny and everyone's going to be sitting around making each other laugh. And it's like, but that's that was not my experience, A, with my father, his friends, or um, my friends who were stand-ups, or, you know, when I worked, the, I worked in the, the comedy store for a while. 
not as a stand-up, just worked there. So it was very observational. Um, I didn't see this happy, funny, hilarity world. I saw a lot of dark souls going through there. And so, and it's a very, it's like, it's like they've been trying to crack, like, how to be a chef and show that on television. Like, I don't think that's a world that anybody has figured out how to show people. Um, So what we've tried to do is make sure that, because Midge is a complete novice to this, she has no, she had no knowledge of how to go about this. We sort of felt like as long as we are going through it with her, through her eyes, we it's easier to sort of show people what the world is because she's experiencing it firsthand. And we're not saying, hey, here's the world fully formed. You know, she's learning how to be a comic. She's learning what it is to put an act together. She's learning what it is to bomb and 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 not succeed or be alone or have to make choices that she wouldn't have had to make if she was just living on the Upper West Side and going to the butcher shop every day. So because and also because we decided a long time ago, this is not you know, when I pitched this, I said this is not the story of a stand up comic. It's it's a story of a woman who hit who hits a point in her life and she discovers a whole other way to live her life. And the idea of taking a woman who was not a 1950s housewife who was dissatisfied with her life or staring out a window thinking there's something better out there, but a woman who really loved her life, who really thought, I've scored, this is great, um, having that ripped out from under her and then discovering this whole other way to live, that was a journey that I thought was worth taking. And because she blows, her life blows up, everybody's life around her blows up. So it was not about, um, I'm just going to show you what it's like to be a stand-up comic. It's just an element of what this woman is. It's as much a buddy comedy with her and Susie. It's as much a family story with her and her family. It's much a, it's much a starry-eyed crossed lover's story with her and Joel who really do love each other, but were sort of children and blind when they went into their marriage and probably will never figure out how to be together, even though at the end they'll be in the pool like Desi and Lucy with the kids and and, and the other spouses are walking around the background and they don't give what they're doing. They're just dealing with each other. Like it, there's so many family dynamics going on there that to me, like the comedy is just one element of it. What have you learned in the course of making now three seasons uh, of this show about that character that you didn't that you didn't plan going in that I'm going to die very soon. It's, <laughs> it's all going to come. Um, I, well, you learn how hard it is to do a, a period show just on just on a nuts and bolts level. It's really hard. Um, I've learned the value of if you don't have all the best people around you, you will fail no matter how good the script is. When you're taking on something like this, um, and I've learned that once you commit to a road, you can't veer off that road. So our road is this woman and her world expanding, expanding, expanding. We can't suddenly take her off that journey. We have to like, we're all in. And at some point, somebody's going to put the brakes on and go, see ya. You know, par- parking passes revoked. <laughs> it's like we're done. But it, it is an all-in commitment on this show, and and it's 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 full steam ahead on every episode, and um, we've got the actors who are willing to do it. We've got the crew that can shoot it, um, and as long as everybody stays alive, it's 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 even if we fail, it doesn't matter because it's it's about just pushing that forward and 
and not being afraid or worried that we're not going to live up to whatever we've set up before. It's just about you got to keep going. You got to keep, you know, shark. You keep moving or you die. Amy, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. It was lovely to talk to you too, sir. Thanks again to Amy Sherman Palladino. Maybe brew yourself a pot of coffee and watch some Gilmore Girls. You can catch up on all of the episodes of the Emmy-nominated Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime right now. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in the beautiful Westlake District of Los Angeles, California. This week in the park, our producer Ragu saw a man carrying a parrot around the lake, and they both looked like they were having a very nice day out. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away from the office. Ragu Manavalin fills in for him. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling, who maybe in the credits I made fun of a little bit for having a framed Gallagher album on her wall, but then she explained it all to me, and she actually has a pretty good reason to have a framed Gallagher album on her wall, and I can't get into the whole thing, but uh, let's just suffice it to say, I I take it back. She was right. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Thank you to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. And before you go, Bullseye has 20 years of archives. Well, 19, 18 or 19 years of archives. Hundreds of interviews with incredible guests. You can check them all out on our website at MaximumFun.org. Or you can also find them in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. All of this week's interviews will be up on YouTube, so you can uh, keep up with the show there or or share those or whatever you'd like to do. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.